Shall we pray? Father, you are a good God. You're a good, good Father. And we rejoice. We rejoice in your salvation. We thank you, Lord, for the certainty of the soon coming of our King. Father, as we see our world narrowing and history narrowing, we see the, the signs of the times all around us. Lord, would you cause us to rise up for such a time as this and be your men and women in such a godless society that so needs Jesus. Father, would you make us the answer to our own prayers for this generation. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Esther, please. Uh, if you're wondering why we, we project it on the screen, there are two reasons. One, for those who struggle a little bit with their vision. And secondly, we have to remember that many times those who are newer in the faith find it a little difficult to drive around the Bible. It takes a little while to find your way around the Bible. But just because we project things on the screen does not mean you don't bring your Bibles. So bring your Bibles and open them and learn to use the Bible every week. We're going into the book of Esther, and, and this time we're going into chapter 6, and we're continuing, uh, we're continuing with the same story that we've been looking at for the last few weeks. So, are you ready? So, we're in chapter 6 of Esther, and I want to, to start off by just asking you a question. Who amongst us suffers from insomnia? A couple of us. Yeah, a few of us. I don't suffer from insomnia. I can count on one finger, I think, the times that I've, I've not been able to sleep. Kath will tell you that I have the ability to say goodnight, and I'm gone within seconds. It's, it's a real blessing. I can sleep on a telegraph wire. I can sleep anywhere. None of this. It's not my own bed stuff. I've, I've never had a problem with not being able to sleep. But King Xerxes did one night. And what a night to find that you couldn't get to sleep. That night the king had trouble sleeping. And so he ordered an attendant to bring the book of the history of his reign so it could be read to him. Now, I don't know if the history of Persia was that boring. He thought it might help him get to sleep or whether he just wanted to listen to the history books being read. Now, in those records, he discovered an account of how Mordecai had exposed the plot of Bigthana and Teresh, two of the eunuchs who guarded the door to the king's private quarters. They had plotted to assassinate King Xerxes. What reward or recognition did we ever give Mordecai for this? The king, a king asked. And his attendants replied, nothing has been done for him. Now, why is this such an important night? Why is Xerxes' insomnia so important here? Shall I tell you why? Because later that morning, Haman was coming to the king to have his plot to have Mordecai impaled on a stake 75 feet in the air. What a night to not be able to sleep. What a night 
to ask for the records to be read to you. And what a night to remember that this man had saved your life those years before. That's wonderful, isn't it? Coincidence? I think not. This is the sovereignty of our God. And this is what we want to look at a bit this morning. There are four great life truths that we want to bring out today. The first one is this. When everything seems lost, it's not. That's the first great truth. When everything seems lost, it's not. Mordecai could have despaired. After all, King Xerxes was a Gentile. What were the Jews to him? His chief advisor was Haman, who was a total anti-Semite and becoming quite deranged in his mind at that. And Haman was planning to have Mordecai impaled on a stake 75 feet high in the air. Now remember I told you last time that it may say gallows in your Bible. The correct translation is a stake or a tree. Okay, the Persians liked to impale people, not hang them. They were nasty people. But Mordecai is not engaging in a self-pity party here. He's trusting God when all seems lost, when everything's gone belly up, when it looks like hope has run out the door. No, it's not. He's trusting God. We walk by faith, not by sight. And way too many of us walk by sight and not by faith. It doesn't take much to hear the bleating from the flock in the 21st century church. The slightest little thing. And so many of us are complaining and bleating and wobbling when things seem lost. No, they're not. God is perfectly in control, and He's working out His plan. One of my favorite verses, you'll hear me say it again and again and again, and if you're on the Timothy course, you'll be sick to death hearing me say this. The Bible tells us, for we know that in all things God is working for the good to those who love Him and are called according to His purposes. Romans 8 and 28. For we know that in all things God is working that to the good. Behind the scenes, often out of sight, He is working for the good. When all seems lost, no, it's not. The second life lesson we need to learn is when no one seems to notice what you do, actually they do. When it looks like no one seems to notice what you do, actually they do. Earlier, we had heard that Mordecai had uncovered a plot by two of the king's closest attendants to assassinate him. And he'd gone to King Xerxes, and he'd unveiled this plot, and he'd saved the king's life. And the king had, has disposed of these guys. They were executed. But it seemed that the recognition went elsewhere. Not a word of thanks had happened. But Mordecai is not a bitter man. He is trusting God. How are you doing? 
When you do something right in life and someone else gets the recognition, or perhaps you just don't even get a word of thanks, how do you do with that? Is that difficult to work with? Do we, do we need to be thanked all the time? I've known so many people who got all bent out of shape because someone didn't say thanks to them for something. They did. I want to bless you, Ken. I want to give you this. And because maybe I didn't say thanks, they get all hurt. Well, why did you give it to me in the first place? I, th- I thought it was a blessing. But if thanks need to be attached to it, that's not quite a blessing, is it? And we get all, we get all emotionally out of shape over things like this all the time. But Mordecai didn't. He knew that when all seems lost, it's not. And he knew that when no one seems to notice, God does. He sees all things. And so Xerxes, suffering from his insomnia, calls for a reading of the history of Persia. And suddenly, suddenly he hears of Mordecai's part in saving his life. What's been done? What reward is given? What recognition have we given to this man? Back comes the reply, well, nothing actually. And the king is about to swing into action. Isn't that amazing? Of all the parts of the history of Persia that could be read on the night that the king has insomnia, it's this bit about Mordecai. What are the chances of that happening? And at this point, remember, Xerxes is completely unaware of Haman's plot to have Mordecai executed. He doesn't know anything about it at this point. Of all the nights not to be able to sleep, it has to be this one. Wow. Maybe there are Mordecai-type folks here today. Perhaps you've done something amazingly good and the recognition has gone to someone else. I once did an enormous piece of work and someone else got promoted. Anyone ever experienced that? I worked my socks off and someone else got the promotion and took the credit. These are difficult things to deal with in our human emotions. These are the things that bend us out of shape. These are the things that our carnal nature gets a hold of. And and we get ugly when we allow that to happen. But Mordecai's not like that. Perhaps you've never received the praise or the reward that's due you for something you've done. Oh, do you know what? When we do unto the Lord, the praise and the the glory are His alone. Remember this, that every night we return to the servant quarters. Only the king sleeps in the palace. And Mordecai does not become vengeful or ugly or looking for his moment or gossipy or running Haman down. This is incredible, isn't it? What a lesson for us in this man. In Hebrews 6 and verse 10, we read this, For God is not unjust. He will not forget how hard you've worked for Him and how you've shown your love to Him by caring for other believers, as you still do. might seem that no one's noticing, but God notices 
And he will not forget. He will not forget what you're doing. Jesus said it this way. He said, when you do it for one of the least of these, my brethren, you do it for me. When you do it for the unnoticed, for the unlovable, for the ones who never give thanks, who are incapable of giving thanks, whatever it is, when you do it for the least, you do it unto me. And God is not unjust. He will not forget how hard you've worked for him and how you've shown your love to him by caring for other believers as you still do. Let us spur one another on all the more as we look at this. When no one else notices, God does. He sees and he does not forget. In Psalm 30 verse 5, for anger, his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Here it comes. Weeping may last through the night, but joy comes with the morning. Hallelujah. Weeping may last for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that wonderful? God has only good things for you. Only good things. I was dancing in my shower today. So I wonder the ceiling never came in. In fact, I did think about that, actually. And uh, I was listening to, uh, to Premier Radio. I don't listen to Premier Radio, but I did today. And, and there was a, a, a kind of a church that was given a medley of really old songs. And they were belting out, thank you, Jesus. And uh, I was really getting in, in the zone. I was, I, was, I was loving it. I was singing. I was shouting. It was great. Because I, I had this, this fresh realization. Thank you, Lord, for loving me. You went to Calvary. There you died for me. Thank you, Lord, for loving me. And there I am, bopping in my shower, singing to God. Try not to get that image in your mind. You'll need some counseling. The third life lesson is this. When everything seems great, it might not be. In Esther 6, verse 4 to 6, this is what we read. Who is that in the outer court, the king inquired? And as it happened, Haman had just arrived at the outer court of the palace to ask the king to impale Mordecai on the pole he'd, been, he'd prepared. Nice guy. So the attendants replied to the king, Haman is out in the court. Bring him in, the king answered, ordered. So Haman came in and the king said, what should I do to honor a man who truly pleases me? And Haman thought to himself, whom would the king wish to honor more than me? Here is a guy so full of himself, who needs recognition, who needs people to bow down when he passes by, who needs the applause of people. He needs everyone to make a comment, to pat him on the back. He is the most insecure man in the world. And he's carrying on like this. And he thinks, well, who would the king wish to honor more than me? Hmm. He's on an absolute high. This is the day when he puts his plan in motion. This is the day when Mordecai goes up on the pole. This is the day when all of his hatred spills out. This is the day, obviously, when the king honors me. 
more than anyone else. This is a great day, he's thinking. When things seem great, might not be that way. Verse 7 to 9 tells us this. So he replied, if the king wishes to honor someone, he should bring out one of the king's own royal robes, as well as a horse that the king himself has ridden, one with royal emblem on its head, and let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials, and let him see that the man whom the king wishes to honor is dressed in the king's robes and led through the city square on the king's horse, and have the officials shout as they go, this is what the king does for someone he wishes to honor. He thinks it's himself. And he thinks, well, what could be the ultimate big-me-up moment? And he decides, I know what, let's have one of the king's suits. Let's look like the king. Let's ride the king's horse. Let's have one of the most important people in the kingdom walk about shouting praise. This is going to be wonderful, he thinks. And the day's just beginning. But verse 10 and 11, this is what it says. Excellent, the king said to Haman. Quick, take the robes and my horse and do just as you've said for Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the gates of the palace. Leave out nothing you've suggested. It's the ultimate humiliation. So Haman took the robes and put them on Mordecai and placed them on the king's own horse and led him through the city square shouting, this is what the king does for someone he wishes to honor. It's the ultimate humiliation. You see, God's promotion principle is simply this. We bend our knee in submission to him. And in his good time, he raises us up. But we never stop bending the knee. He is the king. All glory goes to him. There's a wonderful verse in the book of Revelation. And for any pastors out there or wannabe pastors out there, here's one of the perks of the job. There is a crown given to pastors. There's a crown given. And you know what? We strut about heaven comparing crowns. No, we don't. We say, thank you, Lord. And we take it off and we lay it at his feet. That's what it's all about. But when we strut about saying, look at me, applaud me, make me great, say things about me all the time, we've forgotten everything. We become like Haman, and our heart, our heart becomes an ugly place. But when we're like Mordecai, you'll notice there, he was sitting at the palace gates the servants' quarters. In verse 12 to 13, the story continues. And afterwards, Mordecai returned, look at this, to the palace gates. He went back to the place of being a servant. Even after the ultimate accolade that Persia had to offer. This is like going to the palace and getting the biggest gong that our country can give you with a knighthood and a few other things thrown in as well. And afterwards, he goes right back to the servants' quarters. But Haman hurried home dejected and completely humiliated. And when Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends what had happened, his wise advisors and his wife said, 
since Mordecai, this man who has humiliated you, is of Jewish birth, you will never succeed in your plans against him. It will be fatal to continue opposing him. But, in verse 14, while they were still talking, the king's eunuchs arrived and quickly took Haman to the banquet Esther had prepared. He'd been summoned to a banquet. The fourth life lesson that we need to remember is simply this. What goes around generally comes around. In fact, much of our life is like that. If you stand still, it will come round again. Especially if you're a nutritionist. This week is bad for you. Just don't empty your cupboards. <laughs> It'll become good for you again. We seem to go all the way around in these circles, don't we? All the time. Something's bad for you one week. Oh no, it's good for you the next week. What goes around comes around. Now when God seems absent, He's very present. And all things are working for the good to those who love God and are called according to His purposes. Take the boxes. Do you love God? Are you called? Then everything's working for your good. Even though you can't see it, He sees. What goes around comes around. And we need to understand God's timing. This is so crucial. In Esther 7, verse 1 to 4, so the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet, and on the second occasion while they were drinking wine, the king again said to Esther, tell me what you want, Queen Esther. What is your request? And I'll give it to you, even if it's half the kingdom. Now, this is the second time he's asked of this. And she's bided her time. She's waited on the Lord. Look at this, verse 3. Queen Esther replied, If I found favor with the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my request, I ask that my life and the lives of my people will be spared. For my people and I have been sold to those who would kill, slaughter, and annihilate us. If we'd merely been sold as slaves, I could remain quiet. For that would be too trivial a matter to warrant disturbing the king. This girl's a diplomat. Can you see that? She's good. We see God working here. Even the words she's using are winning favor with this king. Incredible sensitivity. Incredible diplomacy. Incredible reserve and pace. Not rushing ahead. Knowing God is working out all things for good. In verse 5 and 6, the moment arrives. Who would do such a thing, King Xerxes demanded? And who would be so presumptuous as to touch you? Esther replied, here it comes. This wicked Haman is our adversary and our enemy. And Haman grew pale with fright before the king and the queen. And then the king jumped to his feet in a rage and went out into the palace garden. Haman, however, stayed behind to plead for his life with Queen Esther, for he knew the king intended to kill him. And in despair, now get this, in despair he fell on the couch where Queen Esther was reclining just as the king was returning from the palace garden. And the king exclaimed, will I even assault the queen right here in the palace before my very eyes? 
And as soon as the king spoke, his attendants covered Haman's face, signaling his doom. Curtains for Haman. Blind panic had set into his life. A man devoid of complete hope. He's just had the worst 36 hours of his life. He thought he was about to be knighted, elevated, you name it. All the accolades going, and it turned out he was been called to do that for the man he hated the most in the world. And now the queen's accusing him. And now the king's caught him on the queen's couch. This is bad news. He's in big trouble. In verse 9 and 10, we read this. Then Herbona, one of the king's eunuchs, said, Haman has set up a sharpened pole that stands 75 feet tall in his own courtyard. How did they know that, by the way? Because Haman had been boasting about this constantly, about what he was going to do. And he intended to use it to impale Mordecai, the man who saved the king from assassination, then impale Haman on it, the king ordered. And they impaled Haman on the pole he'd set up for Mordecai, and the king's anger subsided. Some people might call this irony. I call it God's sovereignty. That's what we see happening here. Be comforted by God's sovereignty. He does all things well. Everything in his perfect timing. One day, the Roman officials applauded. One day, the Jewish officials rejoiced. The troublemaker was dead. But three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. And that which seemed like an ending was simply a beginning. Look how God changes things. A queen that was so passive is now firmly in control. A king that was so duped is now fully informed. And an enemy at the point of certain victory is totally defeated. And defeated at the moment when everyone thought he was going to win. At the moment, the precise moment when life is at its toughest, God will make his greatest impact. He is a delivering God. He is a saving God. And when he does, it's always full of surprises. Now here comes the surprise. We're coming to an end this morning. Here comes a surprise. In Esther 8, 1 to 4. On that same day, it's been quite a day, hasn't it, so far? It started off with him not being able to sleep having the annals of Persia read, discovering the assassination plot. The banquet was set up. Haman comes to the banquet. Esther accuses him. The king goes out the room. He falls on top of the queen as the king comes back in. The king goes nuts. His doom is sealed. Suddenly it's, it's, it's unveiled. He's a 75-foot sharp pole in his garden plan for Mordecai. He gets put on the pole. This is, this is a bad day by anyone's account for Haman. And on that same day, Xerxes gave the property of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, to Queen Esther. Then Mordecai was brought before the king, for Esther had told the king how they were related. 
And the king took off his signet ring, which he'd taken back from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed Mordecai to be in charge of Haman's property. And Esther went again before the king, falling down at his feet and begging him with tears to stop the evil plot devised by Haman the Agagite against the Jews. And again the king held out his gold scepter to Esther. So she arose and stood before him. God is at work behind the scenes. This is fantastic. Haman is dead, but there's a problem. The law of the Medes and Persians is still in place, and it cannot be changed, not even by the king. What are we going to do? There are now nine months left from when the edict was first met to the day that the Jews are all to be annihilated. Nine months is left, and nobody, not even the king, can change that. What's going to happen? How do we possibly resolve this? Well, in verse 5 and 6, we read this. Esther said, if it pleases the king, and if I've found favor with him, and if he thinks it's right, and if I'm pleasing to him, let there be a decree that reverses the orders of Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, who ordered that the Jews throughout all the king's provinces should be destroyed. Can't do it. We, we can't wipe it out. It's the law of the Medes and Persians. She's desperate. For how can I endure to see my people and my family slaughtered and destroyed. By the time we come to verse 11, the king's decree gave the Jews in every city. Hang on, what's happened here? He's made a new decree. You can't cancel the old one, so he makes a new one. The king's decree gave the Jews in every city authority to unite and defend their lives. They were allowed to, look at this, kill, slaughter, and annihilate anyone of any nationality or province who might attack them or their children and wives and to take the property of their enemies. And the day chosen for this event throughout all the provinces of King Xerxes was March the 7th of the next year, the very day that they were due to be annihilated. A copy of this decree was to be issued as law in every province and proclaimed to all people so the Jews would be ready to take revenge on their enemies on the appointed day. Who could have seen that coming? Talk about turning the tables. The right to protect himself with bells on. And nine months to organize. Brothers and sisters, don't fear what the enemy says or does. Don't fear what people say or do or write, or speak about you, or anything else. God is your refuge. He sees, and He's always at work behind the scenes. Let's come to a close today by looking at verse 15 to verse 17. We'll continue with Esther a little more next week. Then Mordecai left the king's presence. Look at this. Wearing the royal robe of blue and white and the great crown of gold, and the outer cloak of linen and purple. And the people of Susa celebrated with the new decree. And the Jews were filled with joy and gladness, and were honored everywhere. In every province and city, wherever the king's decree arrived, the Jews rejoiced and had great celebration, and declared a public feast and holiday. It's called the Feast of Purim. And many of the people of the land became Jews themselves. 
How about that? For they feared what the Jews might do to them. Our God is more than able to supply all your needs through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for all your goodness and all your provision. And Heavenly Father, we bless you and we praise you and we honor you and we say, Lord, even when things look hopeless, we know that they're not. And Father, even when things seem like nobody's noticing, we know that you do. And Father, thank you that even when things seem great for the enemy, we know that they're not. And Father, thank you that you do all things well. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.